You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Well, first off, welcome, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, now I understand that, that you were a uh, paratrooper, is what we call here as well a pathfinder in LERP units or long-range reconnaissance patrol units uh, in the British Army. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I um, I initially um, joined the military and served with um, with three para, one of our three parachute regiment battalions, um, and then after about three years, volunteered for selection into the Pathfinders, which, as you say, is a is a long range reconnaissance unit, primarily tasked with with, with surveillance and target acquisition for the airborne and air assault forces. You served in early 90s or mid-90s? Yeah, I, I, I joined up straight from school in um, 1986, so just before my 17th birthday. And I finished my adult training uh, and joined my battalion in early 1987. And then I served all the way through um, up until 1990, then from 1990 basically till 2001 with the Pathfinders and then left in 2001. So you spent better part of like 20 years then total? Well, including my including my training, um, just just over 15. Okay. Now, do you guys get a retirement at that point or how does that work? I think Colin explained that you guys get it later. Yeah. Uh, a, yeah. A bit of a sore point with us. What happens is um, if you complete your color service, color service being 22 years, if you finish that 22 years, then basically you receive a gratuity payment when you leave, a lump sum, and then you start receiving your pension from that day, regardless of your age. So like me, I would have left at about 38 years old, 39, and started receiving my pension from that day. It's a very small pension until you are 55 when it becomes index linked and you start to receive a little bit more. If you don't do the full 22 years, then you get a portion of that 22. So I did 15 years. So I get 15 20, 22s, if you like, of my pension. But I can't take that until I'm 55. Oh, wow. So the, sounds, the math just sounds difficult. Oh, yeah. Well, it's designed to be difficult. It's designed <laughs> to be unexplainable. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> So what did you do when you first got out? I mean, that's probably part of the struggle, as I understand it as well, from the UK. Here in the US, you know, you typically use your skills that you had in the military in some cases and transition easily into another occupation. But in the UK, it, sometimes it's more difficult because they don't see a transferable skill. So what was it that you ended up jumping right into? Well, yeah, I mean, to answer your first point, um, there was a, a, a real difficulty um, back before. And again, you know, things changed. Um, things changed after 9-11 because the security market opened right up. Uh, a lot of guys were moving into the, uh, you know, moving abroad in, in, into the private military contracts. A lot of the close protection, a lot of people in the UK and Europe wanted wanted bodyguards and wanted security. So a lot of people were leaving, doing the necessary training courses, and then moving into those sort of high-impact roles. 
Um, but prior to that, it was very difficult, unless you had a skill, unless you're an engineer, a carpenter, a, 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 an artisifer, or you had something really to fall back on. It was very difficult from the infantry side of life, so our line regiments to move into jobs. Um, for me, um, a really good friend of mine was working on a on a on a on a security private security contract in London for an extremely sort of high profile businessman um, who had a large family. So for me, I was I I kind of moved straight into that. I did the a close protection course got all the necessary licensing, and then moved into that job. So I kind of left the military one month and was working the next month. So I was I was kind of fortunate, really. But it doesn't always work that way, as you can imagine. Yes, most yeah. definitely. So you did you start your own company recently, or is that something that you started up right after military service and after you did a little bit of your time with kind of the contracting work? Um, yes, it was um, obviously uh, I did the job in London for a year, and then um, and then as we say, nine eleven happened, and I was offered a job pretty much straight away um, overseas in the Middle East to become an advisor to the uh, to the military forces of the United Arab Emirates, um, working in their special operations command, looking and reviewing their training practices, um, how they prepare their soldiers, how they recruit them, how they train them, how they prepare them for operations. Also, their young soldiers, their young NCOs, and their officer program. So I was kind of embedded in their military as a private contractor, but um, it was a very strange situation. I was actually part of their military, but non-deployable. So I received, uh, you know, I wore their uniform. I held a position within their military, but I had no functional authority in their military. Uh, it's kind of strange um, setup. When did you have the idea then that you really wanted to start talking about how to transition the leadership and ethos and the skills and stuff that you carry within the military and start sharing that with the private sector? I realized, um, again, working working and being around a lot of people in the Middle East, I mean, business was booming, um, a lot of contracts coming into the Middle East, whether it be construction, IT, um a lot of health and safety. What I realized was that these companies um, were crying out for people uh, from a military background who brought a lot of skills and a lot of a lot of things that we take for granted um, in, into their organizations. You know, they're looking for analytical people. They're looking for people who can strategize. They're looking for people who are confident who have an understanding of, of current and world affairs because we've been out within the you know within the within the larger world we've got a real grasp of of current affairs and how that affects different regions um, you know looking for people who are confident who are who, who have a, a great understanding of time you know we're great timekeepers we're extremely diligent and and that was missing so what I wanted to do was 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 bundle all of those skills up again that we take for granted and really really hone them and drill down into what the service men and women can offer corporate business and uh, and I found that it was um, it, it was it was wanting a lot of companies wanted it they wanted to fascinated by the way the military works and and and, and our mindsets and our ethos. And what makes us such such a tremendously employable asset? 
You know, I, we talk about this a lot in podcast about how, in some cases, when people are transitioning from the military, they seem to forget that aspect. They want to try to transition so much that they are changing who they are and, and those values and such because they think they need to transform as opposed to transition. In some cases, they do keep it, but they use it in such a way that puts people off. So it's that fine line of either you're forgetting it and you're wanting to transform or that you're walking in the door and you're carrying it so strongly that it's kind of put off uh, by the employer and by the people that you end up working with on your teams. Do, Do you find that is also the case with the folks that you're working with or the people that you're seeing transition from the military there? Yeah, the UK, um, you know, having worked a lot in America and, 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 and you know, and something that, that, that the US gets extremely, what it does better than anybody else is your acceptance of your of your military and um, and the gravitas in which you hold people in uniform, you know, your ability to go into supermarkets and, 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 and have your own queue. You know, your preferential loan rates, um, the way that you're looked after when you leave the military. Um, there was a period a few years ago um, where, when people leaving the British military were almost hiding the fact that they'd served. And they weren't they weren't sort of selling themselves and, and, and selling the skills that they have. Because they thought employers just thought, oh, you're in the military. What 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 have you got to offer me? What can you do right. to enhance my company? What can you bring that I don't already have? So people were losing that confidence. And like I say, almost hiding the fact and trying to change and morph into something that they're not. Or, as you said, abandon the things that we do extremely well that nobody else does. You know, these ability to 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 make critical decisions under pressure our ability to work with limited resources our logical mind our ability to look at a problem take a take a step back take a breath and then and then not run to someone with our hands in the air saying i can't solve it i can't solve it. i don't know what to do where do i go the military we're taught to sit back look at the problem analyze it and then come up with a solution um, you know, and as I said, this this confidence of going into workplaces, we're used to dealing with multicultural organisations. We can embrace other nationalities. Um, we're not because we've been around them. Um, we're used to working under critical amounts of pressure uh, to tight timelines. And what I was saying to people is, corporate organisations don't do that very well, and that's reflected. In, in the way that they handle their people. You know, um, leaders in a lot of these organizations become very omnipotent because they don't trust the staff underneath them. You know, they don't have that confidence in people. They think that if I allow somebody else to make a critical decision and it goes wrong, my name's at the bottom of that paper where I've signed. I said, what they're looking for is to be able to get people in a room who can just brainstorm problems, who are confident, who are articulate, who have who have the ability to to delve into issues and come up with a problem? So what I'm saying to people is, let's build upon your skills. Let's enhance them. Okay, there needs to be a little bit of of rounding off so that you understand 
the corporate jargon. You understand what it is to for a company to hit its bottom line targets. So that's really where I sort of where I was stepping in, you know, and giving people that confidence to say, look, don't hide your background. Wear it on a T-shirt in front of you because that's what people want. Steve, where was the problem? Was it was the problem with the the actual businesses themselves not wanting to employ military members or was it with the former service members who couldn't articulate their skill set to be able to, to find that initial position? I think it was really 50-50. I think a lot of businesses, as I said, didn't really see the value of military service personnel. They didn't get, um, because they didn't understand the military, um, the British Army, um, and the British military on a whole wasn't very good of getting into the public eye. We didn't sort of publicize the skills that the military has. Um, and we went through a really bad patch sort of late 80s, early 90s, when nobody got the military. And then on the flip side, people were leaving the army and, and you, you know, and, and not having the confidence to say, well, to walk in a room and go, right, this is who I am. This is what I do. I've, I've led men in combat. I've led women in combat. I'm the greatest salesman in this room. How many people in this room have had to talk young men and young women into surrendering their lives right. for what is, in effect, you, you know, a nominal monthly fee? So I'm the greatest salesperson you've ever met because I've talked people into surrendering their life. What have you done? Bringing that confidence into the room and saying, you know, this is what I do. Yeah. Don't tell me I'm not a salesperson because I am. That's something that a lot of people don't understand is that you're asking, like you said, somebody to make a commitment that you're not buying a TV, you're not buying a car. You know, you, it's not something that you can see, feel, taste, or smell. This is something that you're actually going to give up of yourself to do. Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, people who've, who've served in the military understand. I mean, it's not like, and, and the military... I don't want to use cliches here, but the military is a catastrophic workplace now. You know, the risk of, you know, as we're now, we're now fighting on multiple fronts in, in, in areas across the world. It's not one single area of conflict anymore. Right. It's now, it, it's now a multitude of, of combat scenarios we're talking about. So when people sign up for that, Yes, they're making a, 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 a tremendous a, a commitment, and it is the you know it is their life in 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 the service and the protection of others, um, you, you know, in, in hopefully to make you know their country, the the world, a better place to be. Um, and I think, you know, once once a person um, can can portray that uh, confidently in a room in an interview and sell themselves based on, on, on everything that they've done, their experience, then, um, then these corporate organizations were, um, you know, would really sit up and say, I, I actually, I'm viewing you in a different light now. What you've explained to me is everything that I want. I want commitment. I want passion. I want self-service. I want self-motivation. I want diligence, integrity. I want commitment, passion. That They are priceless commodities. You can't buy that. I think we do a disservice to our own service members by trying to tell them to leave some of those experiences in the military. And I, and the word I think that Robert used earlier instead of transition is transform. I think that's what our transition assistance tries to get a lot of service members to do is to transform some of those experiences and leave them behind because a lot of people in the business market are, are frankly afraid of what we bring in. 
But the way you articulate it, I think, is exactly how a former service member needs to. I mean, it, it's it's not necessarily transferable skills into the industry, but it's it's passion, it's commitment. Uh, leadership is is something that I think that a lot of us bring into uh, another workplace that is different than what corporate America anyway experiences. And I think a different flavor is exactly what they need from time to time. Yeah, I mean, um, as I say, you know, working now with sport and, and, and working with corporate organizations, when, you know, when we talk about leadership and when we talk about pure leadership and, and the skills that leaders require, and the difference between leadership and management, because there's a lot of confusion in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in, in, in the workplace about, oh, I'm a manager, I'm a leader. Well, not necessarily. You know, there are, you know, there is a difference between the sort of analytical processes and the uses of resources in the management side and then being a leader, being able to rally your team to your cause, to your vision, uh, having the foresight to understand any problems ahead and reading the road ahead and understanding the mood of the music within your teams as well. You know, um, and leadership, as we said, is something that, um, well, it's the backbone of the military, isn't it? It, it? You know, in all the services uh, and why we invest so much in our leaders. What the corporate couldn't get is when I described the sort of the progression of a soldier who'd been identified as a future leader, whether it would be a non-commissioned officer going through. And I said, it takes 12 years in the British Army before you reach the rank of sergeant, before you are technically you know, working with 30 other soldiers in an infantry platoon in the UK. I said, that's 12 years. Uh, and they said, well, we, we've done two leadership weekends and now I'm in charge of a team. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, right, okay. So there's some differences then. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that that's something that's lost in the military. Of course, here in the States, you're talking about maybe 24 months, 18, 24 months, you might be leading a team or you might be going up to a squad in three years or four years. Taking those leadership skills, taking those traits, taking those ethos and transferring that into the private sector and not feeling as though you have to actually transform or modify who it is that you are. But I think, too, there's there's a lot of education process that goes within the private sector of helping them understand what type of people that you're going to be receiving from the military. And in some cases, I think they get it for the values and for the ethos and stuff like that. But I don't know that they really understand the person and the quality as far as the uh, skills that they're bringing to the table as well. In some cases, I think they like uh, military individuals because of the ethos, the values that they're bringing, but they don't see the potential and value of what they may bring in terms of other aspects, skills, knowledge, leadership, they might see the leadership side of it, but I think they think in a lot of cases that leadership in the military is, if I tell you to do something, you do it because my rank says that I control that conversation. But the fact of the matter is we, we all know that's not true. You can't lead that way, not effectively. Hiding behind your rank never does work. No, and, um, you know, and that's something that, you know, I like to stress a lot when we when we're talking about and, and and you've exactly hit on the right point there, Robert. Is that uh, you, you know your rank is not a stick to beat people with, you know your you know your your rank is by dint of your experience. You have been identified as having the right personality, having the right skills, having the right you know all all of the things that the right humility, the right passion for the job, the fact that you're a man I, I, and I use the word man manager it's the fact that you can deal with other people, you have empathy, so you're listening to the feelings of those people around you and working with them and not using your rank to to you know to to stamp on them. 
And and as and as we all know, you know, once you start moving through the military, regardless of your rank, if the soldier below you believes one hundred percent in your commitment and he believes that you know or you believe in what you're doing, then they'll follow you. I think you find that same mission. I've been out long enough to see it within the private community, and I'm sure you have too, Steve, that this kind of process actually works out in the private sector just as much. I mean, you have people who carry titles that believe because they have that title and that position that automatically it grants them the authority to be able to direct people in a certain way, and they feel like they're above the law or above the cost kind of thing as well. And in that they make decisions and they expect for you to kind of salute the flagpole and move out swiftly. I think that what's so ironic about that is that they think that that's exactly the problem with people coming from the military. Yet that's a lot of what people within the private sector are actually doing. And I think it's much because, as you pointed out, they, they don't go through a process to become a leader or a manager. It's typically something that's time-driven or it's something uh, where they knew somebody that helped them get promoted, but there's no formal training. There's no formal classes. There's no formal process as there is within the military. Something else, Robert, is is there's a lot of trial and error in the military. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes that are made by junior NCOs and, and junior officers. Just like Steve said, you know, it takes 12 years to be able to lead a platoon as a sergeant in the British Army. Well, it's 10 or 12 years to be a platoon sergeant in the U.S. Army, too. But you start out as a corporal or a sergeant, you know, with a, with a fire team, four to five guys. Um, and, 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 man, a lot of mistakes are made when you're 20, 21 years old and leading those first four or five guys. And, and I think the growth over several years of, of developing a leadership style is what makes us in the military a little bit different than somebody just thrown into position as a manager out in the business world. I mean, there's not as much room for error in a business world when you're dealing with bottom lines and dollars. You know, we're dealing with people, and that's important. Uh, but for a lot of our careers, those decisions aren't made in combat in, you know, in split seconds. Some of them are now. Uh, but initially, at least in my experience, I had a lot of time to develop a leadership style before it was really uh, something marketable. It wasn't well, something know, I could just go out and do. It's funny you mentioned that, though, Mike. I mean, when you think about, okay, yeah, they're making they're, – they're dealing with dollars and stuff, and it's a much different environment. But I'll share with you that the majority of the people are not dealing with that type of impact. That's usually at the executive level and above. Those that are actually below that level are not dealing with any type of crisis. They're dealing with more day-to-day work that – quite honestly, they may feel is really important and is life-threatening and, and critical and all of that. And the real matter is, is that the, the folks that are in the military and serving our country are dealing with much more critical issues that are life and death related and the issues that are in the private sector are not. Uh, unless you're dealing with a you know, hospital environment or you know those types of things where you're actually dealing with a life and death situation, but the better majority are not. So those that are in the executive positions that are making decisions that affect shareholder or stakeholder value, th- those are more critical kind of level positions that, yeah, they're making strategic decisions that could impact the company and affect, you know, the decisions of the board of directors and the stakeholders that they're serving. But again, the majority of those other positions are not. So they're, they're learning as well by trial and error. But I think that the difference is, is that we are assessing ourselves on a constant basis within the military, whereas in the private sector, I don't know necessarily that anyone is assessing their leadership capabilities and really thinking about that. Now, they're starting to do more 360 developmental studies and analysis that 
allow you to kind of hear from your peers, from your subordinates, and from your leaders. But I'll share with you that quite a few of those don't actually even put much value within those surveys uh, because it's a it's a lot of cases it's the the time frame in which they're done it's what's going on and circumstances around them that could impact the decisions so if you just upset a couple of your subordinates by making a decision well you're not going to get a favorable uh, survey you know and so it has a lot to do with that as well yeah i mean um you know i think you know everything there is is, is absolutely correct i mean as we said, you know, you go through this, you know, you go through this embryonic process when you join the military of making sure that, you know, and the military doesn't, wouldn't like to put you in a position that you haven't been suitably trained for, you don't have the suitable experience for. So so they make sure that you're hitting those markers before you're elevated to a position where you're leading men and women in, into combat. Um, in the, when you move across into the private sector, there is a lot of fear as well, you know, and a lot of... Um, not so much jealousy, but I think it really is, um, you know, leaders who, who who take on military people become very apprehensive because they see you as a threat to them. You know, they, yes. their life, you know, and I've come across, I've come across, you know, every kind of, of leader and manager at the moment. And, you know, and, and some of the people that are, are there with the guys that, you know, they're out, they're getting their hands dirty and they're working with their teams and they're, they're taking feedback, you know, information is coming from the top through them down to the, to the workforce and the workforce are passing it back up. So the leader becomes, he's a, he's a conduit for this passage of information and experience. And that's tremendous. But I've seen on the flip side where leaders sit in their, in their, in their office at the end of the corridor, taking credit for the work that's been done. Yep. And then when things go wrong, throwing the hands in the air. Yeah, and you know, and, and expecting someone to fall on the sword. So when people are brought in from a military background, I think there's that apprehension as well as that you know they know that you have all of the skills that they should have. Um, you know, you're bringing in this maturity, this confidence, this this ability to to to, to, to make decisions under pressure, this rationale. You can make friends because we've, you know, we joined the military. I walked into a, into a room with 60 other people I'd never met at 16 year old. You have to build a friendship. You have to talk and communicate. And those friends are for life, as we all know now. You know, so when you walk into an office environment, you have got the confidence to stay in a room and go, right. Hi, my name's Steve. I'm Robert. I'm Mike. This is what I do. This is what I'd like to do. How, you know, so we bring that maturity to the table and I think um, I think sometimes you can be seen as a threat which is why um, you know which is why corporate organizations you know really didn't embrace the military for a long time I, I have seen leaders actually believe that knowledge is power so they believe that by having my position and my title I'm given information that if I don't share it, it means that you'll just follow me blindly because of my position. And, you know, I've seen a leader that actually sat in his office and kept the door closed and everything was all secretive. And what he did share was very, you know, everything was close to the chest. And I think with the military, we learned from the very beginning and operation orders and stuff that there's the need to know value, obviously, as far as what information can be shared at what various position, but knowledge is transferred all the way down to the lowest level because every person on that team, regardless of rank or organization, needs to understand what the overall objective and goals are so that they can march towards that same objective to collaborate and make sure it's accomplished. 
in the private sector on occasion, there are those types of leaders that don't get that aspect of it because they've not been trained again in that type of leadership style. No, yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely, Robert. Like you said, um, you, you know, holding information close to your chest gives you gives you power over people because you know more than they do. You're always going to be one step ahead of them because you know something they don't. In the military, as we all know, we can't afford that. You know, the, from the from the from the most junior private soldier all the way up to the commander of the of the mission. Obviously, there is a information is compartmentalized so that everybody knows it, but. You know, even your youngest private soldier on the left-hand side of of the arc of information understands the mission objective. He understands where he's going, how he's going to do it. And it, and and as we said, what I explained to corporate organisations is the military is about getting the right people to the right place at the right time with the right equipment to do the right job. And that's what the military is about. And that's what you need to do in big in business. And and if you can't do it, then there's a break in the chain, whether it's the information chain or, you know, confidence, ability, your teams, your managers don't trust the teams, your teams are hold, not working for the manager because they don't feel appreciated. Uh, there's no, the, the, you know, there's no gratitude passed down to the team for a job well done. So it is, again, how you manage that. Um, and, and we all do it by, you know, we give each other a pat on the back and at the end of an operation, you know, there's a, there's a company smoker where everyone gets to, you know, let off steam. The families, there's a barbecue, you know, so there's gratitude and, and, and you know, and there's that feeling of worth. And I think sometimes, you know, people go to work and, and would never, ever, ever dream of socializing or, or talking outside of the office with anybody in their team or any of the managers. So it creates a very distanced relationship. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've run into my own personal leaders in the private sector that didn't want to know anything about me outside of the workplace, wanted to know, of course, what it is that I'm doing and working on and, and the initiative or project at hand. But when we started talking about things outside of the workplace, well, that was a taboo kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that was one of those things that we just don't talk about those types of things. It never was said, but you could tell that the conversation wouldn't flow beyond just a couple words because they didn't care to know. Whereas me as a leader, I, I tried to go as far as I could within the roles of human resources. And obviously they kind of hold your hands a little bit as to what kind of information can be shared or how much the individual wants to talk about it. But I think it was always important to me to get to know the individual because, as we all know from a military leader standpoint, you want to get to know what makes that person tick, what drives them, what is their passion, what are the things that also keeps them awake at night, what are the things that is a demotivation for them, what are their worries and concerns, because unfortunately a lot of the things that are affecting them in the home place will roll over into the workplace. So if you yeah. don't understand the individual then you're probably not going to be an effective team because you're going to have that weak link all the time within your organization. And so you got to be able to, as a team, pull one another up, take care of one another, and understand one another. We do that within the military all the time. Yeah. However, in the private sector, that's not something that typically happens. It's it's very focused, and, and people don't want to get in. When they do get in the private lives, it gets a little bit too far to the to the one side where they end up going out and partying with one another and the whole bit, and it ends up going in the wrong direction. So that's why they yeah. want to pull back to the other extreme. No, you're absolutely, I mean, uh, you know, obviously there is a, 
there has to be an element of standoff between between your managers and 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 the team, and we get that. But you know, working with a working with a huge insurance company last week, um, you know, asking me how 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 do you how does the military how do you motivate the team? How do you motivate each other? Uh, as a leader, how do leaders motivate? And I says, well, you know, just take a few things for granted. I mean, if I asked you now, you know, if I pointed at a person in a room and asked you how many children they had or what relationship they were in, could you tell me? No. If I pointed at somebody else on the other side, could you tell me who his other two closest friends are in the office? No. How do they get to work? Do they car share? No. And then, it, you know, and it was, well, how do how do you guys do it? I says, well, you know, there is that. If I had a problem in the military and I went to my, you know, my platoon sergeant or my company commander and said, I've got a problem at home and I've got a... He would say, yeah, just take a day, go home and sort, sort it out because tomorrow you may have to come to work to fight. And I can't have anything, you know, I can't have your, your, your family suffering or you having anything else on your mind when you come to work tomorrow. So take today to sort it out. I said, those are the kind of things that your team will be looking for. And again... You know, corporate corporate organisations sometimes because they're paying you money. That's it. Right. That that's it. You know, that's your motivator. That's your, you know, whatever whether it you, whatever it intrinsically motivates you or whether extrinsically motivates you, whether it's financial reward or whatever. But business was just no. You're being paid, so that's it. I, there's no. I don't want to hear anything else. You're being paid for a day's work. Yeah. 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 You're getting paid for it. This whatever's yeah. in the box, whatever I defined within your you know, job description and those types of things. Anything yeah. outside of that piece of paper or what's written on there in words, I don't want to know about. That's, you know, yeah. that's taboo. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I see it a lot. Yeah. You know, what you're, what you're really talking about is a difference between leadership and management, at yes. least in my opinion. I mean, a manager is is dealing with those resources and things that are that are tangible, whereas leadership deals with people. That's a people skill. At least it is for me and it is for people in the military and in my experience. Uh, the, the things that you have to know about your subordinates to, to exact, exactly what you just said, Steve, to understand what makes them tick so that when they come in tomorrow, if you've got a fight, their mind is clear. What's the difference in the corporate world? Why wouldn't you want you know, your, your, your people to come in with a clear mind that, that, that can accomplish your objectives? I, I, I think that's a skill that, that everyone in the corporate world ought to embrace. Yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely. You would. I mean, you know, we're sitting here now discussing it, and it seems absolutely clear to us. <laughs> But you go out into the corporate world and it's as clear as mud. <laughs> you know, it's just something that they don't, it, that, that's not really, um, it, it hasn't really took a hold yet. As you said, you, you, you know, people think that their managers and their leaders and, and that the two skills are intertwined. Well, for me, no. As, and, and as you've identified there is that, you know, leadership is, you know, it's, it's, it's about people. It's about reading people and, and getting people to follow you willingly and read into your vision and work for you because everything's in place. You appreciate them. You reward them. You know, you're giving them guidance. You're nurturing them. You're helping them develop. You, you know, you're being friendly to, the, to, to as much as, as you're allowed to do without it breeding contempt. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's something that the military does extremely well. And and I think that's why at the moment corporate enterprise is really looking at the military in a different light now and looking at service personnel when they leave as what they can bring to the table now, whereas before it was, there's nothing that I can get from you that I don't have already. And I'm finding that more and more now. So do you think they've been receptive to what you're teaching them? Do you, do you see a shift 
in their culture, so to speak, if uh, if they're starting to look more at the military for those type types of skills that we do bring to the workplace? I think absolutely, 100%. At the moment, you know, I've never left a training session when somebody at the end of it hasn't said, we had no idea the military works like that. Hmm. We did not hmm. in any way you know, appreciate or even comprehend the way that, you know, the way that some of the things you're talking about that you do in the military and have been doing for 50 years, that they, you know, that they thought was isolated to, to them and that they were leading on it. You know, when we talk about setting up for organisational change, I said that you're going to work in the military and your best friend's been away on a training course, he's broke his leg, you've now took his place as, as a commander. Somebody's decided to leave, somebody's been promoted, somebody's moved away. There's been conflict, catastrophic death, and suddenly 10, 10 people in the company have gone and you've been elevated. I said, the military does organisational change on a minute-by-minute basis. Yes. And this is how we get round it. And and they go, no way. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, what did you think we do when we need to change our setup, our all-back, our organisations, when we need to reconfigure? You know, how do you think we do it? I never really thought about that, but that's so true. In the private sector, they have an organizational change, and it's such a huge thing. I mean, they think in many cases, or or maybe it's the new leader that's coming in, believes that the culture that they're walking into needs to change. To me, you know, when in the military, it's so true of what you just said. When we received the new leader, nothing changed. Every new leader just brought a different style of leadership, perhaps, to the table. But the mission, the objective, the goals at hand, what we had to do on a daily basis never changed. It was always the same, regardless of who's setting up there in the top spot. And that's how we believed it should be. Whereas in the private sector, it's a major ordeal. And normally within, if especially if it's a higher leader, Normally within, say, 6 to 12 months, there are major shifts within the organization from a cultural standpoint, from a leadership change standpoint, that shifts and modifies the whole culture of the organization, the dynamics, how people react. They get emotional. They get tense. Stress builds up. It's, it's very, very different within the private sector. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's very gratifying when you're talking to senior managers you know, I'm talking to, a, a, you know, to a board of directors. And for instance, a company I was at, we were on about branching out into the Middle East and we were talking about, and I said, well, do your due diligence and do your research. And they, and I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, in the military, we'd learn culturally, we'd expect, we'd send our soldiers away to at least know the basic greetings in their language, you know, how what, what, what not to do and what to do when you're in their presence, what offends them, because we can't get any work done. If we go to a meeting and the first thing we do is sit cross-legged and show the leader the soles of your shoe, which in the Arabic culture is an offence, the rest of the conversation, whatever we were trying to get done, has broken down immediately. And they went, you really do that? And I went, yeah, we send people away and we learn about the... And that's what you should be doing. If you're going to branch out into the into the Middle East or into Asia, find out what they like, how they like to communicate, what offends them. Send your people over there with the basic greetings in their language. I said, you, you know, how much would that break? And, you know, and you, it's almost like trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes. Right. And and they said, well, that's... But we would do that. The military would do that per se. It wouldn't, it would be a given. Right. And yet I'm talking to you about it and it's the first time that you would ever imagine that you would need to do some due diligence and research before you tried to break into a market you didn't understand. 
Do you find um, do you find a lot of these companies when you get done though are are they more receptive to the military after hearing what you're talking about? Do they approach you and say something like, you know, now that I I never knew anything about that, I think I need to go back and start looking for military perhaps to be more managers and leaders within my organization because they can really offer you know value to the bottom line or- yeah i mean i, I mean like you said I, the, the companies i'm dealing with now were, were, were completely shocked by the, the diversity and the range of skills that that somebody from the military brings and as i said to them you know, you know, the, the the higher you climb in the military, then then the greater those skills become. So if you if you recruit somebody that's been six years service in the military, then as long as you are as long as you're an employing him within a role that, that's relevant to his experience and understanding, then you'll get the best from him. But then if you're if you're looking for your senior managers, then you as you're recruiting people that have had more exposure in the military, got more experience, more maturity, um, you know, that should be where possible. You know, if that's where you should be dipping your toes into recruitment and seeing if there's anybody out there, advertise on military websites, get in touch with. We have an organization in the UK called Pathfinder, but it, it is for placing servicemen and women when they leave the army. So it's an advertisement board, a magazine. So I was saying, you know, you should be, you know, trawling those magazines and looking at military um, recruitment sites, which are accessible to the public for. You know, now that you know what you're looking for and what skills you can bring, widen your search base, um, you know, to include, you know, not just recruiting fellow corporate people, just say, well, let me look into the military and see if anyone's posted a CV on there or if anybody's got a necessary skills that I'm after and is or going to LinkedIn. Look on LinkedIn, a huge military presence on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where you can read their profile. Um, so I think, Generally, I think there was a lot more acceptance now that, that, that the military that military people have 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 a huge range of, of skills and experiences. Where can people find more about you, Steve, and information on how to maybe get in contact with you for speaking engagements? Or I know that you've written a couple of books as well. So how can they find out more about you? I'm on um, www.steveheneymc.com. So that's my website, and that gives information about, well, it gives my bio, um, and it looks at, uh, there's um, some PDF files on there about the leadership masterclasses that I deliver. I also do, um, I'm still starting to do a lot more, which I find is, is, is really interesting, is executive coaching. Um, sitting on a one-to-one basis with, with, with people who, who have decisions big decisions to be made or, or, or have been asked to make a decision or, or, or review a product or review a person or review uh, content of a file and, and want some, some guidance on strategies, how they develop a strategy, how, the, how they manage and handle resources, how they manage and handle disruptive personnel, which is a really big thing at the moment in corporate. Because, I mean, in the UK... You know, there are about 16 layers of discipline before you would be able to, to get to the person to a point where you, you say, look, if you don't improve or you don't stop that behavior, I, I, you know, you'll lose your job. So there's dealing with these disruptive influences, people who are causing issues in the workplace, you know, absenteeism, bullying, um, racial issues. You know, and again, there's a big, you know, how did the military, how does the military, because they all think that we just slap people in irons and lock them away. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I said, no, there's obviously we have processes about dealing with disruptive influences and what I used to call barrack room lawyers, 
soldiers that would get other soldiers together and say, well, they can't do that. And if we all stick together, they won't do it to all of us. So executive coaching is a big thing as well. And, you know, they want to learn from the military about how we make decisions, how we manage time, how we manage resources, how we pool people together, how we motivate. And, and again, how we handle discipline. So that's a big thing at the moment as well. Uh, that I'm getting starting to find a lot more uh, people uh, are contacting me for. But as I said, on my website, there's a lot of information there about about me and the books I have written. So people could, could find a little bit more about me there. Great. We, we appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been wonderful, and I, I th- can see many different topics that we could probably talk about and hit on in the future. So we'll be reaching out to you. Yeah, uh, because leadership is one of those things I think is a skill set that the military have that we've talked about on this show that transfers very easily. And it should be something that those who are separating really think about how it can complement any organization and demonstrate that as best they can through their networking so that they can get those opportunities to be able to, to demonstrate that. I think that that's a real value that a lot of people under undervalue probably as they're separating. I mean, the three biggest, the, the bits of advice that I give people now, and again, I'm, I'm, sp- I'm, I'm going back to my old unit in the military next week. Um, I left 15 years ago to give them a presentation. They called me back. Um, so what I say to people is if you do make the decision to transition into civilian life, then wear the fact that you're in the military on a T-shirt. Don't hide behind it. You have got so, you know, be confident in your abilities and what you what you can bring to the table. Don't be scared about moving out there. You know, embrace it, go into it and, and take the same confidence that you have in the military into the into the private sector. And the big thing for me is get get your CV, get your, your curriculum vitae done. Because for me, as I talk to people, they say, well, you know, are, really, are people going to want to understand that all I did, I was a section commander, I led a squad or I led eight men. I said, okay, well, if you transfer that into civilian speak, you looked after the, the welfare and personal development of seven soldiers. You conducted, you, you know, you were a HR manager. You dealt with issues and welfare issues with them. You've dealt with funding because you, you organized a, 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 an event with people. So you're, you've been a fund manager. I said, so all of those things, even at that level, you have handled and you and, and you have done well. So, you know, get your CV. Don't go in there with them because organizations will look at it and, and go, right, well. But if you transfer those skills over into civilian speak, then you're a huge asset. So I say to people, you know, go out with confidence. Don't hide behind the fact that you're in the military uh, and, and, and get someone to look at your CV. It's worth paying $100 to get somebody to do it because, uh, um, you know, it's the first point of contact. Yeah. And you only get one shot at a first impression. Yeah, and that's my advice. Yeah. You know. Great advice. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Take care, guys. All right. Great Take talking care. to you, Steve. Yeah, and you. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four MIL, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio.